welcome to Voices and Queries, the podcast from VNQ Books. VNQ Books publishes remarkable writing from Germany in English. And on the podcast, we talk to the writers and translators behind those books. I'm Katie Derbyshire, the Imprint's publisher, and I'm also a translator. And seeing as Aicheta Kulu and I translated the book together that we'll be talking about in a minute, which is Selim Erdogan's 52 Factory Lane, the second in his Anatolian Blues trilogy, I'm going to be handing over the reins this time to the wonderful Rebecca DeWald. Rebecca is a translator, an editor and a literary activist in Glasgow, and she's always really, really busy making things happen. So we're super pleased she agreed to help us make this podcast today. We've also obviously got Aicha and Selim on board via the magic of remote recording technology. Rebecca! Thanks very much, Katie, and thanks so much for inviting me to um, record this podcast with you uh, because I'm just so excited that Gull is back. Um, <laughs> last year, when The Blacksmith Daughter came out, I attended one of the Borderless Book Club sessions and you, all three of you were in, um, in session there as well. And I remember when we the different readers were discussing the book, we all were unanimous in our opinion that we all loved Girl, wanted to hear more about her and just were all rooting for her. So um, it's just really excited to know that she's back. For listeners who haven't read book one or who would like to refresh their memories, Salem, would you give us a brief recap of what The Blacksmith's Daughter is about and what happens? It's set in a small town in Anatolia in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, a little bit of the 60s and it's the story of a small girl growing up in this village kind of circumstances. Um, at the end of the Blacksmith's Daughter, girl leaves um, her Anatolian village um, to go to <laughs> Germany to be reunited with her husband, Furt, who's already left um, to work in Germany um, as a gastarbeiter in the 1960s. I hope I'm getting the time period right. It's a first time to a big city to begin with. She has to travel by Istanbul and she'd never even left her village. And she just embarked on the train. That's where we leave her at the Blacksmith's Daughter. So then we start... 52 Factory Lane, where we obviously meet Gil again, who's now a young woman living in Germany. She's fairly recently arrived, lives somewhere near Bremen. And the first thing she notices about this new life is that it's so much quieter than her life in the village in Anatolia. She had to leave her two little daughters, Seda and Saren, behind until she can find work so her and Ford can then find a bigger place where they can all settle and eventually bring over the two sisters as well. From my experience, I felt like there are similarities between books one and two, but there's also some differences as well. The similarities, I thought there's also regular glimpses of the future. We get a bit of a sense of what will happen to girl. And that's really nice as well. There's something really reassuring about knowing when things will turn out well or when things will turn out differently. And there's just kind of a bit of a hint of what might happen in life. There's also a framing narrative, of course, to the story. We follow Girl along, but I feel like what makes the essence of the book is these kind of episodes <laughs> and the scenes of family life that they all experience together. What I felt was different to book number one, though, for example, was that I felt like the tone was very different. The Blacksmith's Daughter is a bit more dreamlike in quality in the sense that the world felt more different, probably also because Anatolia in the early to mid 20th century was very different to everyday life in late 20th or 21st century Europe. Um, the world of book two starts to become more recognisable to me as a reader, also as a reader who grew up in Germany, as it chronicles 
not just skills life, but also post-war Germany, Wirtschaftswunder Germany, this sort of economic miracle that happens, but from the point of view of a Gastarbeiter family. So with this in mind, I was wondering, a question for all three of you, Billy, is how did you handle the shift in tone and style from having written or translated a previous book about Go to Fifty Shoe Factory Lane that's got a different setting and the characters have grown? Well, while writing it, um, the first part, it was like, okay, this has, well, at least to me, it's uh, it has this atmosphere of fairy tales because it's uh, it's a time which is just long gone and you reimagine and I try to rewrite a time I didn't see, I only know from stories which I've been told. So it had that kind of atmosphere and tone and good being in Germany is like um, I, I come I come closer and it's not a fairy tale anymore it's not uh, the other one is about a childhood your childhood memories are different you know that there is a difference when you remember things from your childhood and you remember things from your grown-up life so that had to change and it was yeah well, to me it's just a natural process you you go with the character and the tone changes that's very interesting i, th I mean, yeah go for it, katie i was just gonna ask you translators how you felt that transition whether you felt a difference there or how you handled it i think it's a little bit different when you're translating because you're you're led like like Selim said you're led by the characters we're led by the what he's written but we didn't work on the two books seamlessly so there was about six months in between finishing the first one and starting on the translation of the second one and I think we just kind of approached it as a whole new project Aicha what would you say yeah I, th I think we did I think in some ways that the translation is sort of a, a record as well of us sort of developing in our relationship as translators so it kind of bears the sort of hallmarks of that but um we were conscious of things like the fact that Gula was older, so her, you know, there was certain language that we would put aside, like we'd use slightly more complex language and stuff. But, I mean, in terms of the kind of vibe of the book, the first book is a lot more familiar to me in terms of things I've actually seen than the second book. So the first book was more fairy tale like but more familiar to me, whereas the second book was kind of like, what is this world of <laughs> factories? I don't know anything about this. Particularly the chicken episode. Oh, the chicken episode. But it was the, for, for me, it was the other way around because even though, okay, I didn't live in Germany in the 60s, it's still a, a much more familiar setting to me than, than this kind of far away place. Yeah. Mm. Somehow it came together. Yeah. Well, we hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, it came together very well um, from my point of view. So it's fascinating to... Um... Yeah, to hear your experiences about that as well and how also probably another way of like why co-translation is a good thing because you all bring different aspects and different experiences to the book as well. Um, in terms of good talk about time passing in the book as well, which is also combining those two worlds. So it's not like girl leaves Anatolia, lives in Germany, never sees her old way of life again in that sense. The family regularly visits Turkey in the summer so they spent the long long summer holidays going back to Turkey for six weeks or three months 
And with the time passing as well, I was also very pleased to see that girl, as as you mentioned, Nita, is there. She grows as a character because I think when we first meet her, she's a little girl. She's very shy. She's quiet. She's a listener. Um, she hardly ever speaks up for herself to the extent that even her father, Timo, who also makes a reappearance, which I was very happy about, that Timo is still going, her father, but also her younger sister, who is much more gregarious, and even her husband, Fuad, say to her, you, should, you need to speak up for yourself, you need to be more daring, you need to take risks every now and then. And there is a point where Gu kind of comes into her own, she does discover her voice. I mean, she doesn't. she's never going to be the loud person, she's never going to be the person like advocating for herself but there's at least one incident where she really speaks up and I was so happy when I was reading that so I was wondering Aicha would you do us the honour of reading a little bit from the book now okay it beggars belief while you were cleaning once a week the program's on and you go and break the aerial on a Saturday couldn't it wait till Monday once a week we sit here nice and cosy together and they tell us what's going on back home once a week other women fall onto, out onto the street while they're cleaning the windows, and my wife has to go and destroy the aerial. You must have tugged pretty hard at it, and that's what you call cleaning, is it? You shouldn't be allowed anywhere near electrical devices. You shouldn't even be allowed an iron. Once a week I watch a lovely, slim presenter, not like my wife who's so fat she rips the aerial off the telly. Why don't you try dieting? It's been like this all afternoon. Goo lets him moan as much as he likes, thinking up answers that go unsaid and smiling to herself because she knows Jada and Jeren are playing outside, out of harm's way. But after a while, she's had enough. It's your fault I'm so fat. Fwat stares at her, amazed that she's suddenly answering back. He's even more amazed by her accusation, which he's never heard before. Before he can come up with a response, Goo tells him, it was you who came along with the pill. Here you go. I've got something for you so we don't have to be careful anymore. Without me going to see a doctor. It's those pills that have made me swell up. Those hormones or whatever they are. Who knows where you got them? And anyway, maybe you don't like fat women. Maybe you do want a slim blonde wife. But shall I tell you something for a change? I like men with hair on their heads, not baldies. You can't always pick and choose what you get. You hear me? Men with a full head of hair. Fwat jerks his glass upwards. But he doesn't pull back to hit her. Gul stands in front of him and looks him in the eye. And before the defeat she sees there turns into disaster, she leaves the room. Later that evening, Yulmaz will say to Fuat, That's how I like it. You're learning to drink now, my friend. Just savouring it in peace, not getting louder with every sip you take. And Sarnier will say to Gul, It's better, honest. The old one drank and beat me, and this one just drinks. God forbid, but if I do ever marry again, perhaps the Lord will send me a husband who doesn't do either. But who knows what flaws he'd have then? A man like Serter, who's lost his marbles, isn't what you'd want either. Your lahmarjun is delicious, by the way. May your hands always be healthy. Fouat will never say anything about Gul's figure again, nor Gul about his bald head. Women might pose in front of the mirror to inspect their new clothes or put on makeup, but it's men who are made vulnerable by vanity. <laughs> Thanks so much, Aisha. It was funny. That was it was great, a great reading, but also funny that we were all giggling Not away. Not baldies. <laughs> How awful, baldies. Um, as you can see in the passage, it was very funny, but the book also tackles very big questions, but in a quiet way. 
for example, what was mentioned in the passage there is also issues of domestic abuse, um, of alcoholism, of gambling and so on. But in it, Gul, for example, feels lucky that although her husband Fuad gambles and drinks, at least he doesn't hit her. I mean, small victories, I suppose. There's a lot of hardship in the story um, and of stories of being separated from your loved ones as well and of longing that progress that Germany offers just can't solve. Katie, would you read a small passage on this as well? Sure. Just a little one. Decades later, Gül will say, Fuat has always believed in progress. There was always something better, nicer and more comfortable out there somewhere. And we've had it good, the Lord be praised. We're not starving. We've no need to fear having empty bellies one day. But that longing was always there. It's just as God commands. We can just as much escape longing as we can escape death. Thanks so much, Katie. I feel like the book is full of gratitude and simple happiness, which is very nurturing to read. I was reading it um, this year as well, while the pandemic is still ongoing as well, and I feel like it's one of the the things we need to read about more. I think that's the sort of glimpses of the future is, is quite nice thinking like, might not always be great, but there will also be lighter times ahead. Um, so I was wondering, what is it about this trilogy, now that you've translated two of the books, Aisha and Katie, what do you think is it about the trilogy that travels well in translation? The thing I really like is that I think the books can appeal to anyone. People say that about lots of things and it's quite boring to say, oh, the, the books are kind of detailing kind of experiences that are universal but they really are like um I can share these books with my nan which is a mark of success for me because there's something about them that kind of crosses the divide like they're not snooty (laughs) they're not like snooty literary books um no but they have a lot of kind of truths in them and they're really genuinely moving also everyone loves a kind of world-weary woman who's kind of been sort of like crushed by drudgery <laughs> so why would you not love Gil? I mean for me it's it's the family actually that whole kind of widely branching family and friends all the acquaintances I think almost all of us have a family which is equally infuriating and lovable and annoying and and you know you've got your annoying auntie and your Obviously, all my aunties aren't annoying at all. Um, but um, it does feel like that's kind of universal. And yet this family, they're experiencing their very own quite particular fates kind of thing. I think that's true. Um, Celine, is there anything that you noticed maybe in the translation that you felt, oh, I didn't realise that was going to work in English or that was going to work in a different context? No, <laughs> there were mistakes the two realized um so that changed uh we got rid of the mistakes in the original (laughs) (laughs) were you surprised at how well it traveled yes but for me uh not being a native speaker i i can't really say um this is good or this is not good what i really like uh about the translation is that yes i can read it and um it touches me emotionally because I only see the text and not the work I put in. So it's a really nice way of rereading your own stuff. And yeah, it meets my taste, but um, being in a different language, it's emotionally closer to me. That's fascinating. 
Somebody in the Borderless Book Club last year also commented on the book and the trilogy by extension not being your typical German literature because it's, I quote, neither about World War II and it is funny. Selim, would you read us a funny passage to illustrate that point in particular, please? We already had funny passages. Um, yes, I do. <laughs> um, they traveled by car from Germany to Turkey and they are at the Bulgarian-Turkish border. They pass Bulgaria. They had the Turkish border. The officer takes the papers out of Ford's hand and pulls a hundred mark note out of his passport, holding it up between his forefinger and thumb through the open window. What's this? he asks. Ford hesitates for half a second, maybe less. Oh, that shouldn't be there. I thought I'd lost it. How did it get in with the passports? The officer shakes his head. This sort of thing is out of order. Pull in over there. And get out of the car, please, all of you. With the man out of earshot, Ford grumbles, if it was raining soup, I'd be the only man with a fork. What rotten luck to get the one customs officer in a hundred who won't take bribes. At half past midnight as well, thanks a bunch. If it was raining pussy, I'd get hit on the head with a prick, I tell ya. Gül looks over at him. She almost never hears him curse like that. Don't look at me like that. Now we'll see where being so loaded gets us. They take the whole car apart. They look behind every screw. You've got us up shit creek now. The officers search the car for four hours, sifting through the cases and bags, making orderly lists of items. Ford is so tired he nods off on a bench. The sleep gives him the strength and the custom duties, the anger to rant and rave behind the wheel all the way to Edirne. Of course, three toasters, two irons, four watches, two mixers, one juicer, one, I don't know what, six kettles, six, like we want to open our own shop. Did you see how much I fought for all that? Six big ones down the drain, my hard-earned money just so our relatives can heat up a slice of bread and wear a nice clean shirt. As if it's not enough for you to take the money out of my pocket to buy all that stuff. Let them wear what they want, nylon shirts for all I care. No need to ironing. I don't give a shit. I don't work my hands up to the bone so they can live the life of Riley. That rubbish has cost us well over a thousand marks now. How many nights could I have played cards on that, huh? How many lottery tickets would that have bought me? All the great things you can do with a thousand marks instead of splurging it in on electric gadgets and then paying customs on top. It hurts my soul. How many hours did I graft for that? But when we get there, you're not to say a word about what happened at the border. You hear? Not a word to anyone. Make sure the girls don't tell anyone either. I don't want to hear any more about it for the whole of this holiday. Not a word. After a while, he falls silent, but his rage keeps him awake until the end of the journey. They arrive in their hometown late that evening. Ford won't eat, only drinks a glass of water, turns down the rucker and doesn't even finish the last cigarette of the day. All he wants is to go to bed. <laughs> Thanks so much, Selim. That was excellent. Um, as this passage illustrates perfectly is how amazing Fuert is a swearing, presumably in German as well, but we're reading the English version here. So um, translators, was he the most fun character to translate? Yes. Yes. 
<laughs> I love him so much. <laughs> I didn't yeah. like him at all when I first started reading the first book. I was like, oh, what's a dickhead? Um, but he's a dickhead with a heart. Oh, such a heart. <laughs> and a, a good way with words. Yeah. But also, it's a really fun challenge to translate this kind of it was raiding pussy stuff, you know, because... <laughs> It's hard to find that tone where it's, it, you know, makes you laugh out loud and still be sort of equally infuriated and in love with this guy, you know. So that makes me even more fond of him, I would say. The challenge, extra challenge of, of translating him, yeah. Um, in contrast, who do you think was the most difficult character to translate or the most difficult to get right in terms of tone? No, I would say I find good quite difficult, actually. Because I don't know anyone as lovely as her, you know. So I don't always know, is this something she would say? I think that with that, that when I'm thinking about our comments that we send to each other, I show we send little comments in the margins on our translations. Quite often we say, oh, yeah. would Goo say this? Would Goo say damn? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't quite made up our mind always, you know. As much as I love her dearly. She, she's the most challenging for me personally. You don't have a problem, might you, huh? I think I, because Gil is lovely, and this is shout out to my mum, I base her on things my mum says. But when she's being particularly sweet, I, I try to make her sound like my mum. Like the, in the third book, we've just translated um, part of, she's talking to one of her daughters and she doesn't actually say this, but I added in the words like my treasure, like take heart, my treasure, because she makes a comment in the first book of the second book. She makes a comment how her stepmother never sort of spoke to her kindly and called her nice things like her mum used to. So made a conscious decision to make her sound a bit nicer. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's hard with people who use a lot of proverbs because then we have to have to email Salem and say, is this a proverb? Did you make this up? <laughs> if, if this is a proverb, can you tell me the Turkish for this? Because I don't know it. Yeah. And then you have to try and make it sound a bit weird, but also like something someone would feasibly say. Yeah. Generally, it's just fun. <laughs> that was a really good point. I was going to ask you about idioms as well. And one of my favourite idioms or expressions, I'm not quite sure, it might, it might fall into that category of like, is that a Turkish expression or is that... Is that just Salem, basically? Is when um, when Gül first arrives in Germany, she gets a job in a bra making factory, and it reminds her of streetwalkers in Istanbul market shouting hats for the fat twins. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like everybody can immediately picture what that is. Um, there's lots of very particularly English idioms in the book that you chose in translation, which is an interesting choice. But then there's also idioms or expressions like that where it just feels like it's probably a Turkish expression or it's probably a German expression. But that kind of gives it a really, really nice flavour. And and Fuad's continuous, like, a beggar's belief, a beggar's belief is his, his catchphrase as well. Um, yeah, so I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit more about how you chose the tone and style for that. Which idioms were too English, for example, were you just, like, going with each character differently? A beggar's belief, that was Aicha who found that. Because <laughs> we, we spent a long time thinking about it. I love it. Every time I type it, I'm like, I love this. <laughs> beggar's belief. Yeah, uh, I don't know why I chose that. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that part is uh, better than in German. What does he say in German? <laughs> Kaum fassbar. Mm. And it gets mm. better because we are repeating it. Yeah. But um, 
as far as I understand it, Beggar's belief is just like the very first time he uses it, it works. And in the German version, it's throughout the book. While we keep repeating it, it gets uh, stronger. So um, <laughs> we got rid of the mistakes and we made that one better. <laughs> well, they made. I, I didn't do anything. Yeah, Selim was barely involved. Um. <laughs> <laughs> How do we make the decisions, though? Um, I write something very English and then see if you'll let me get it through. <laughs> I noticed that my idioms I choose are very, very, like, Ron Weasley English and Katie's are more kind of, like, sort of a more universal English. <laughs> like, like, she wouldn't let me put bonkers in the first book. Mm. Um, no. Oh, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> I mean, it totally didn't fit. It was weird. <laughs> um, okay. For me, it's just what sounds nice and funny in my head. Yeah, it's kind of instinctive, but I feel like because there's two of us working on it, we get a little bit more texture, actually. Mm. So we get kind of idioms that Aisha grew up with or that I grew up with, and, and that just we have all the more mm. to draw on. So I'm very really pleased with how we do it, yeah. Yeah, we're not shy to kind of chuck something in if it's not particularly common, but it means something to one of us. Yeah. That's yeah. good. yeah. Um, I said at the start that the blacksmith's daughter ended with Gül leaving her Anatolian village for Germany and sitting on a train um, through Istanbul. But actually, the last few pages of the book are a sort of flash forward, a somehow a little bit cryptic standalone monologue by presumably Gül, beginning with the sentence, I'm not afraid of death. So the assumption is that she's probably towards the end of her life, looking back at her life. And she gives us the impression that she's somehow at peace with how her life's been so far. And Salem, you previously said that when you wrote the very first book, you weren't planning a trilogy, but readers loved the character so much they were asking for more and were very grateful for that. But with book two, you then, correct me if it's wrong, but you then realised there was going to be a third book. Did that somehow change how you wrote the second book, knowing that you had another book to play with? Yes, definitely. Um, just because of that, I knew. I the, the end of the first one would have been different if I knew. When I wrote that, I was like, okay, this is where migration starts. I'm not your author who writes about migration, so this is it. Um well, maybe uh, subconsciously I, I uh, thought about writing. Well, there's no real reason to put in the flash forwards in the first book. So it's kind of nice thing to play with. But, um, well, they were already there. So I just had to pick that up and uh, have a very vague but uh, some kind of understanding of what the third book would be like so I could be a little bit more careful when writing. Did you sometimes have to go back to the first book saying what did I say was going to happen to her because there's flash forwards in the first book as well of like how this life uh, would turn out. Yes 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 I definitely had to do that. <laughs> just to make sure. Because you you just it, it's it's always amazing to me because um I write the book and then I, in a way, rewrite it. 
and then you read it and then you try to make it better and in the end when it's published um, you've read the books well i don't know 10 times 12 times 15 times and then uh years go by and uh, you're like uh, i don't remember i don't know and it's like that with every book i have a feeling and i have memories but um I just forget it. I can remember books which I read from other people which I read like three or four times better than my own. But I don't have that kind of connection and emotion. <laughs> well, I have, but in a different way. Well, my next question might sound a bit mean then because I was going to ask what you can tell us about book three, <laughs> but hopefully you still remember what you wrote. <laughs> um. Well, the, the translators know, because they are still translating, as far as I know. Try so, and pull that um, one. fresh memories. <laughs> <laughs> because we've obviously whetted everybody's appetite for book two, for 52 Factory Lane. Um, so if you loved book number one and book number two, you're in luck, because there will be a third one. And my turn, Katie, you're already working on it. What can you tell us about it, what we've got to look forward to? More more of all the characters you know um, yeah I mean it, it becomes it's the story of good aging and it is beautiful as you can imagine and funny have we decided on a name yet Aicha? We haven't 100% decided on yeah. the name but I feel like we think we know what the name's going to be yeah. but it will have knows. the word light in the title <laughs> And it might be a light still burns, um, right? It might be that. It might be that. I mean, I quite like that. So. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds very yeah. good. We played with some sounds other good. things. Sounds good. There we go. Sounds good. And as far as I remember, um, there's a little bit more tenderness mm. in the book. It's really yeah. sad. No, I wouldn't call it sad. It's really... Sorry, cynical. <laughs> it is! I'm putting off translating my next section because I think I might cry too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not because of sad events, but because of a certain kind of tenderness. Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to give away... I, I give anything yeah. away, but it, it's very, I think it's very melancholic. Yeah. And, and it's like, you know, Gulli's coming to the end of her life. She's not like it's about her about to die or anything, but, you know, there. Are, I think you probably become sadder as you age. I hope not. I certainly have oh. at the ripe old age of 31. <laughs> um, no, but there's, you know, you have new cares to consider yeah. and new woes. But also new joys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think as we notice in 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 uh, uh, Fifty Two Factory Lane, like anyone else, Gu gets more confident as she gets older. Mm. So she, you know, she changes even more towards the end of her life, and that's a joy to read. Yeah. I'm very excited about that because obviously listeners to this podcast have got Fifty Two Factory Lane to look forward to, which is out in April. But I obviously have to wait for the third one now. And with your publisher's hat on, Katie, when can we look forward to Girls' Aging Memoir? Uh, you have to wait another year. Another really year? Sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry 
up, you translators. Sorry. It takes a long time. Yes, it takes a long time. No, we thought we would do one a year so that you can, you know, step back and read another book in the other six months. And uh, but obviously save your spring energy mm. for good and family <laughs> every year, once a year for three years. Well, I am for one. I'm very much looking forward to next year then. One thing to look forward to, at least. <laughs> Thank you very much to the three of us. That's all my questions for now. It was a joy to talk to you all and to reconnect with Girl, of course, and to get some insights into the process of writing and translating the book and the trilogy. And everybody else, please go out and get the book and read it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Oh, I have to round off now by saying you can find 52 Factory Elaine and the Black Sister Daughter at your local independent bookshop and via our websites vq-books.eu where you'll also find other episodes of the Voices and Queries podcast featuring our great writers and translators including one all about the Blacksmith's Daughter from last year. Do look us up at your favourite purveyor of podcasts and check us out on social media where our handle is VQBooks because you cannot do an ampersand on social media. Thank you also to Selim Özdoğan and Aicha Tukulu for today's conversation, to our lovely podcast producer, Susan Stone, so patient with us today, and to Andy Sayer for our beautiful theme tune. Thank you for listening. I'm Katie Derbyshire. This podcast was co-funded by the European Union's Creative Europe Scheme.